U.S. authorities announced more arrests in the slaying of a Haitian president. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Four more suspects were arrested in South Florida this week in connection to the assassination of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse, in 2021. We examine what the ongoing investigation means for the international community. Next, outrage after the city of Miami cited Little Haiti Cultural Center with unsafe structure violations. Members of the Haitian community fear the action could lead to potential takeover of the center. Finally, it's almost time to vote for new leadership in Palm Beach County's municipal elections. A reporter explains what voters in the county should expect. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup. I'm Wilkin Brutus and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Four more people were arrested in South Florida this week in connection to the assassination of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse, in July of 2021. The arrests include the owner of Miami-based security company, CTU, who hired ex-Columbian soldiers for the job. A total of 11 suspects are now in U.S. custody. During a press conference on Tuesday, U.S. Attorney General for National Security Matt Olson announced the arrest in Miami. According to a press release from the U.S. Department of Justice, for months, quote, South Florida served as a central location for planning and financing the plot to oust President Moise from power and replace him with someone who would have served the co-conspirators' political goals and financial interests. Joining us to discuss the updates to the assassination that has rocked Haiti and the international community is David Adams. He's a senior editor at Univision. David, thanks for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, David, tell me about the four men who were arrested. What were the key takeaways from the charges? Well, uh, they were four people who, um, to be honest, we've been wondering why it took so long for them to be arrested. Um, It wasn't a secret, um, their identities, um, nor was it a secret that they were implicated um, in the assassination. And uh, their whereabouts were also uh, well known, uh, even though they'd been kind of lying low. Uh, and in fact, one of them, Antonio Intriago, who is the CEO of the uh, Miami area-based uh, security company that hired um, the uh, alleged assassins, this group of Colombian former soldiers, um, uh, he had been cooperating with the FBI and Homeland Security since the very beginning, according to uh, his lawyers. His partner, uh, a Colombian gentleman, Archangel Pratelt, he uh, had uh, been less visible. In fact, he'd kind of disappeared off the map, and we were wondering where he was. Um, uh, and uh, so it was interesting to see him actually uh, show up and uh, be there in court in um, very casually dressed in a yellow t-shirt, blue shorts and flip-flops. Um, uh, and then um, the the other two um, uh, persons were, one of them was really actually somebody who hadn't figured, um, I, I should correct myself, one of the people was a bit of a surprise, we didn't know anything about him, a Mr. Bergman um, uh, from Tampa, um, who is sort of peripheral, really um, uh, uh, know anything uh, about uh, him uh, at all hmm. um, so that one that one was a little bit of a surprise he's he's really only 
uh, involved from uh, in, uh, in relation to some bulletproof vests that were smuggled uh, to Haiti. But the, the, the takeaway really was that the uh, prosecution, um, uh, the U.S. attorneys in the Southern District of Florida are basically saying um, these were the people who really planned um, this uh, assassination. They're, they're saying that they are actually the masterminds. Yes, I mean, when I actually asked um, uh, the U.S. attorney that question directly on Tuesday, and 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 he did recognize that um, this is a fluid investigation and things could change, other names uh, could surface. Um, those of us who've been you know covering this case for a long time now, um, uh, we have certainly got other names in mind. Um, uh, not necessarily people here in the United States, though. Uh, I think they've pretty much rounded up the people who might be um, uh, involved here. But there are certainly other people in Haiti. Um, uh, and actually, in, 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 um, there's somebody, I think, um, that they're looking at in Canada. Um, so there are other people who... Um, certainly played significant roles, let's say. And, and David, just to piggyback on what you just said here, you said you certainly, for folks who have been covering this, have several people in mind. Um, are those same people that you have in mind the investigators are also looking at? Uh, well, that I don't know. Um, I, I wish I could tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they, they should be, um, because they're not, again, um, they're, they're persons who've been written about extensively, in in the Miami Herald by its excellent Caribbean correspondent Jackie Charles, um, by myself, by the New York Times, um, uh, and um, they are um, you know kind of mysterious figures. Uh, one of them is, in fact, two of them are on the lam in Haiti. One of them is a Supreme Court justice, a former Supreme Court justice, um, and another one uh, is an extremely interesting fellow, a former. Um, somebody who worked in the anti-corruption unit of the justice ministry in Haiti, Joseph Felix Badio, um, he is at large. And he is, by many accounts, considered one of the real masterminds. The Colombians, in fact, um, some of the Colombians have described him as being the person who gave them um, the orders to assassinate the president. Wow, a former Supreme Court judge. So this actually reached the upper echelon of elites in, in Haiti. Uh, obviously, when you're doing an investigation like this, you have to follow the money, David. Uh, were, were the people who financed the plot to assassinate Haiti's president arrested as well? Um, yes, um, I left one person out. Um, as you said, there were four people arrested. Um, Walter Ventimilla, uh, who's an Ecuadorian uh, uh, American living here in South Florida. Um, he he was in court too. He was actually uh, the only one with a private attorney. Um, the others were uh, basically professed to be um, um, impoverished and, and were given um, uh, public attorneys. Uh, uh, Mr. Ventimilla showed up with a, um, you know, um, a, 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 a private lawyer He's a wealthy individual, lives in a in a substantial home, and he um, is a loan broker um, by trade, and uh, allegedly was the person who provided a one hundred seventy five thousand dollar line of credit to the security firm CTU to go and hire uh, these Colombians who ostensibly were in Haiti to provide protection for somebody who's already been indicted. 
um, Pastor Sanon, uh, a South Florida Haitian American uh, pastor um, who uh, was arrested in Haiti and was um, earlier this year uh, uh, transferred to uh, Miami as well, and, is, and as I say, is in custody. And he had these pretensions um, about becoming a presidential candidate, and supposedly the Colombians were hired to provide him for protect for um, security uh, in Haiti. And, hmm. and then, then it's after that that kind of everything went um, pear shaped, if you like. Right, absolutely. And I think one of the main questions that folks are asking across the Haitian diaspora is why kill the president? At first, the plan was not to kill the president, right? What what, what changed, if so? Yes, uh, and in fact, um, that's a theory that um, those of us who've been covering this case for um, since the beginning have, have been working along. Um, uh, it's clear that something changed. And in fact, uh, Pastor Sanon has not been directly accused of the assassination. Something happened where the Colombians who were there providing protection for Pastor Sanon decided that Pastor Sanon was no longer really a viable project. And they were, if you like, um, hijacked um, by another group of individuals. And, and this is where some of those Haitians who are at large um, kind of appear in the conspiracy. Um, they appear to be to have sort of... Um, taken the Colombians under their wing, offered them a sort of an alternative project, uh, which evolved from let's have regime change to, well, let's forcibly overthrow the president, let's arrest him, put him on a plane to Miami, to what eventually happened, uh, his assassination. And that is something that is quite evident in the prosecution case. They've, they've stated it now in in uh, their um, evidence uh, against the, we now have 11 uh, uh, defendants uh, here in, in the United States, and, and it's very clearly in the indictment against them. Um, and they were the ones, not all of them, Salmon, for example, excluded from the final assassination plot, but um, um, the rest of them, nine of the 11 uh, uh, involved in that terrible, a final evolution of the plot into an assassination. Wow. Stay with me, David. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. More people were arrested in connection to the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. Uh, call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, David, of course, the assassination of Jovenel Moïse created a massive political vacuum in the country where gangs have now taken over control of large areas, impacting food and gas. And just recently, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced Thursday that Canada is deploying Navy vessels to Haiti as gang violence worsens. Uh, that was part of a request by Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry. In what way does this new revelation in regards to this investigation about the assassination impact the relationship between the United States and Haiti? Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a good answer. Um, the What is clear now is that the U.S. government is determined to get to the bottom of this and prosecute those people responsible all the people responsible, we can't be sure because of the, the people 
still left in Haiti. Um, but you know, the U.S. government. Uh, we have you know, there's the division of um, the branches of government, and so the judiciary does its thing. Um, the executive does its own thing, um, uh, and then you know, you could have Congress act as well. Hmm. It's really still not clear um, that uh, Congress has shown really no interest. Uh, in fact, um, there's supposed to be an investigation. Um, the U the the the, the um, U.S. government, the Biden administration, was supposed to deliver a report to Congress about the progress of the investigation into the assassination. It did, but it was a, um, a frankly very thin uh, on uh, details. Um, the yes, the 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 State Department um, is talking with U.S. allies in the region. Um, there's there's a, a meeting going on right now of CARICOM in the Bahamas, the, the Central American uh, countries. There's been discussions at the Organization of American States in Washington. And then, of course, there's the United Nations. But the United Nations, which you know, in the past has intervened to um, restore order and democracy um, in Haiti, some would say not terribly successfully. Right. There's um, a definitely checkered history with that. Right. And, you know, and obviously, you know, in the past, there have been security resolutions um, to, to I remember being there in 1994 when the United Nations intervened to restore President Aristide to power. Well, you know, um, uh, with Russia and China uh, in the United Nations Security Council, that's a kind of a more difficult proposition. It doesn't look like China or the United States or Russia, in particular, Russia, obviously, are, are in any kind of mood to help out the United States to do anything anywhere in the world. Um, so I'm not sure we can really count on the United Nations to do a whole lot. The OAS, um, you know, that's possible if there was some kind of consensus um, amongst US allies in, in the hemisphere that uh, an intervention was necessary in Haiti. It, it's it's theoretical, but there's there's tremendous reluctance um, to do that. Curiously enough, there's tremendous reluctance um, uh, in the community of, of people on, particularly on the left, um, who are concerned about um, the the terrible um, situation in Haiti today. They're very, very ideologically opposed to the idea of intervention, right. foreign intervention. They, they, they believe that you know, foreign intervention has done more harm than good uh, in Haiti. There are others um, who care deeply about Haiti, um, who believe that actually foreign intervention at this stage is kind of Haiti's only uh, hope. Um, but it's not clear really you know, um, which side of that debate is, is going to win out. Um, and... Uh, you know, the other possibility is that Haiti um, sorts itself out. Um, <laughs> that right now is really hard to see. It would be wonderful to see the political forces in Haiti come to an agreement that, you know, um, elections need to be held. People need to put down their guns um, and, and, and get together and, 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 and reform um, Haiti's um, democratic institutions. Absolutely. But there's too much... There's too many gang. There's too many gangs and too many guns in the hands of the gangs, right. and they control too much territory in in Port-au-Prince right now to to really make that 
seem possible. Yeah, David, there's there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, To your point, in an attempt to restore security and order, Haiti's prime minister requested help from the U.S. and Canada at uh, the U.N. Security Council last year, um, asking for full military intervention on the ground. But so far, no action on that yet. Um, What happens next in the investigation? Uh, Any any more revelations to come? Uh, well, I suspect there are, uh, actually. Um, you know, we still haven't gotten to the bottom of what was the role of the... Um, there was this this, this Colombian gentleman, uh, Angel, uh, Archangel Pratel. He was an active FBI confidential informant um, when all of this uh, uh, plotting and assassination was taking place. He was only deactivated afterwards. That was kind of one of the revelations this week. Um but it, it begs the question, what did the FBI know about the plot as it was evolving? It's uh, if, if the FBI had an informant, uh, the FBI says, the government, the prosecutor says that the F, according to, to the FBI, they knew nothing uh, about the plot. But I think there's still some unanswered questions there. There was supposed to be a trial later, uh, next month um, of some of the other individuals already in custody including um um two uh, two colombian soldiers Mm -hmm. um who participated in the uh, supposedly allegedly participated in the plot um and a couple of others Uh, that um uh, presumably now is off because we have now this this case has now evolved from a small number of people to 11 right um and lawyers have only just been um uh, hired they have to get up to speed um, with the new defendants in the case. So I think we're probably not going to see any significant or any trial, let's say, until much later this year, maybe even not till next year. Next year. And so, so it's going to keep evolving. Uh, David Adams right. is the senior editor at Univision. David, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Really appreciate it. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Still to come, the city of Miami has hit the popular Little Haiti Cultural Center with unsafe structure violations. Could this eventually lead to a shutdown in the future? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The city of Miami has hit the Caribbean marketplace at the Little Haiti Cultural Center with two unsafe structure violations. One of the violations is for failing to obtain a 40-year recertification, which is required by Miami-Dade law. The building has been owned by the city of Miami since 2005. At the time, the city had plans to demolish the venue until protests and local groups forced them to save it. Now, they are effectively citing themselves for failing to abide by the law. This this, This has residents and activists worried that the city would decide to shut down the facility. The community fears that massive development in the area could make it unrecognizable. Joining us to discuss this is WLRN reporter and co-host of the South Florida Roundup. Actually, the host of the Florida Roundup is Danny Rivero. Hey, Danny. Activist and chairman of of the Captain Haiti Foundation, Martin Nandy, also known as Captain Haiti. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And artist Edouard Duval-Carrier, a Haitian painter and sculptor who owns a studio in Little Haiti. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Rogan. Thank you. Uh, Daniel, let, let's start with you. Um, you reported on this story last week. 
could you take us through your reporting process? What, what did you find? Yeah, I mean, it, it all starts um, like a lot of things start with reporting. Someone just tells you something and you have to go and verify it. Right. And and so I I, I heard that the this building got an unsafe structure violation. I contacted the, the city. I put in a request to get the, the document itself. Um, and they and they came back and they said, which one do you want? Because there's actually two unsafe structure violations. And I said, oh, well, that's news to me. Which so, yeah. one do you want? So so please give me both. Um, and it took a couple of days and um, it came back. And yeah, the, the, the building just at the very end of, of January was hit with, with two violations. Um, one of them for a failure to obtain a 40-year recertification, um, which they originally cited themselves with with that um back in 2016 i learned and they still hadn't complied with it um and you know what i mentioned in the story that i wrote is that the timing of this is is what has made a lot of people question what's going on because just a couple weeks ago there was like a massive real estate auction sale in the in the surrounding area tons of properties really right on the same street just got bought by it by a developer just to the north of it, there's the Magic City development, which is, I don't know on the top of my head how many acres it is, but it's a massive property. So a few weeks after this auction, boom, this structure is deemed is is unsafe. And, you know, there's questions about like, what does that mean? What are they, what are they going to do here? So that's where it started. Yeah, yeah. Where, where the, went. the timing certainly for the community seems a bit suspicious. And, and just to clarify, uh, that sign was actually posted plastered on the actual building itself right right yeah they it, it was plastered on the on one of the the doors of the caribbean marketplace and i do know after my story came out um this week the the head of the building department in the city of miami and the, and the commissioner that represents that area they di- they did show up to a community meeting to kind of calm people down because people were a little bit um I don't know the uh, outrage. Yeah, well, <laughs> out, outrage, but also just uh, there's there's a lot of skepticism because there's so much development going on in this area, so much money moving, changing hands, and you know it's something I've been reporting on recently is unsafe structures, especially after the Surfside condo collapse. The city of Miami has been very, very aggressive with labeling buildings unsafe structures, and a lot of times ordering them demolished. They've more than tripled the staff on that on that part of the city. So they're putting a lot of resources into this and there's a lot of lawsuits about it. Um, the city's losing some of those lawsuits. So there's a lot of reasons for people legitimately to be concerned and to have questions about this. And, and that meeting you referred to earlier was almost like a, a town hall meeting, which was actually held at the Little Haiti Cultural Center. Exactly. Um, now, Danny, your, your story picked up was picked up by many places. Um, uh, such as Union Suite, which is a Haitian American platform. The comment section was tense with folks advocating for long-term solutions and expressing fears about the changing character of the neighborhood. Uh, the Haitian Heritage Museum uh, shared a video on Instagram about that particular meeting that you just referenced. Uh, it was a, a little Haiti trust meeting. Uh, and so if you browse online, you can see, you can feel the intensity in the air that, that it's, you know, bubbling up at the same time. Uh, Martin, let's talk about what the center means to people. Uh, on a cultural and historical level, the Little Haiti Cultural Center means a lot to Haitian Americans. What what went through your mind when you heard the news about the city-owned building receiving an unsafe structure violation? 
oh, what got, what came to my mind was checkmate, right? Because it's been uh, since I got in Little Haiti, um, I've noticed this majestuous Maché Haitien, Haitian market, and I saw the great potential that it has for the future, not only of Little Haiti, but for Haiti, to showcase the best that Haiti has to offer to the world. And it's also a center that I see that the youth in Little Haiti, with such a high unemployment, could be there showcasing the best that Haiti has to offer to the tourism, but at the same time having an economic impact back home at the same time. And that was even before I've got to meet the business owners and property owners in Little Haiti, like um, Mr. Liman and Madame Liman, that started to have a um, bakery. Uh, they were selling pate in the marketplace. And uh, when I talked to Monsieur Mapu, and then they told me the story through which they happened to lose uh, the marketplace and the opportunity that, that the city took to buy it for a dollar, their attempt to purchase the property that have been bought by the city, that's their, on their own account. And then after that, today to be in a situation where we have a great potential $5 billion coming to be invested in Little Haiti, great opportunity for the community to take part of that development and not having a space for vendors to repeat the story of the past of being there in the marketplace build up a start, uh, build a startup in order to own in the future like we have building owners and the community today and, and describe the the feeling behind the culture center itself. I, I want to create a little bit of sense of space for our listeners for, because there's, there might be a lot of people who've never been to the center. Um, what was held there? Was there music concerts? Can you describe why the center was special for Haitian Americans? The, the center is quite, the activities over there are quite limited. So what's valuable to the community is not necessarily the quantity of activities that are there because it is underfinanced, understaffed, and we understand the challenges of the city, right, to occupy, because it is a park and recreation, to render services, cultural service to a specific population with a staff that is that doesn't necessarily understand the complexity of the culture. So it is a challenge for the city to have uh, to budget it properly. Uh, and also to manage the structure properly based on uh, the, the budget that they have. They have to take hard decisions. So the cultural center and mostly the Maché Haitien, the Haitian market for us, it's the symbolism. It is our fingerprint, our presence in Miami. So we look at it as the potential and what it could be and not what it was or what it is today. That's why we are here to say to the city of Miami, we have Haitian entrepreneur, black entrepreneur, real estate developers, very successful all over the country that are reaching to the Captain Haiti Foundation, banks, technology company, in order to establish a private a public partnership with the city and help them reestablish along with the community like the glory of the Mashiach and the cultural center. And if, if I can just add a quick thing here about the building itself, um, it was 
built in 1989, finished in 1990 by a very well-known architect, Charles Pauli. Um, he built it modeled on the iron market of, of Port-au-Prince, um, which is like an open-air bazaar built in the late 1800s. And, you know, it, the building doesn't look like anything else around. It is completely its own style architecturally for the area. And, and the city, when they bought it in 2005, their initial plans were actually to demolish it initially when the city bought it. And it was because people in the Haitian community came together because of the symbolism and because they, they saw potential in it, they stopped the city from demolishing it in 2005. And that's part of what people are anxious about now. It's, hey, city, you already wanted to demolish it. They had to take to the streets to stop them from demolishing it years ago. Is this going to happen again? I mean, that's a lot of the work. Yeah, and, and, that, and that fear is certainly growing for sure. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Members of the Haitian community discuss fears, uncertainty after the city of Miami sided Little Haiti Cultural Center with unsafe structure violations. 800-743-WLRN. Call us. 800-743-9576 if you want to join our conversation. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Um, Martin, you also talked about, you know, um, the, the business aspects of it. I want to talk to Edouard duval about the sort of cultural part as well. Um, Edouard, your paintings and sculptures often capture the essence of various authentic parts of Haitian culture. Little Haiti is often viewed among Haitians as a home away from home. Uh, to Martin's point, he mentions the mache, uh, the marketplace, which is a, an extremely important aspect of Haitian culture. How important is the venue to people living in Little Haiti and for people visiting, Edouard? Well, for me personally, I'm like totally surrounded by the structure because I am a Haitian artist, bought a place here when a, when I first came here and there was, uh, the market existed, but uh, subsequently, I mean, it has, a, this whole thing has a checkered history, but uh, it was bought by the city when the Haitian community here decided that they wanted that structure. It was refurbished by the city. So, you know, like, I mean, how unsafe are they refurbishing their, their own structures and then suddenly putting, uh, uh, branding it as unsafe? That is very worrisome to me because I don't, I mean, what's unsafe about it? And since when was it the, 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 the management, I mean, the contractors that, that refurbished the place to put it into use recently? I mean, very recently, I mean, about two, three years ago. So, I mean, how unsafe it is, that's what I want to know. And what does that mean? Apparently, it is just a question of, you know, like getting a, a, a certificate that this was done. I mean, the, the building belongs to the city. What kind of a, um, I mean, who are they suing? Who are they, you know, like slapping it with? I don't understand. Plus, recently they've managed to, you know, like they, we don't have a manager, we don't have a director, we don't have a curator, we don't have anything in this, in the, in the uh, little Haiti cultural center. Whatever happens in this, in this structure, in this facility, is by the sheer will of certain actors in the community. Me personally, I mean, I mount a, since I had demanded when they were building it to have a gallery. I feel a bit uh, uh, responsible about that. So I formed an, an association where we every year we do two, three, four exhibits, not only of Haiti, but also for the Caribbean and uh, to present contemporary art to the public. And it's been very welcome, all of this. There's a lot of other activities. There are some 
dancing uh, uh, facilities. I mean, they're dancing troops that have taken the facilities, you know, like as their home base, and other and other such. So, um, but the the building, the structure itself, belongs to the city. And if they fixed it, why is it unsafe? I mean, right. that's and my question. If just just to to say, I mean, at the at the meeting this week, the city said they're basically taking steps to address the things and that it was a technicality. I still think the the timing of it is uh, very suspect for a lot mm. of people. Um, and I I should mention that you know also just the backdrop beyond the Haitian community that this is happening in. I mean, the city of Miami continually because of its own actions is putting cultural spaces at risk or, or, or affecting them, right? Like the city owned tower theater was managed by Miami Dade college for 20 years. The city just took over management and it's shut down. It's not operational. Right. Um, the, the coconut grove playhouse is, you know, possibly going to get demolished. They're going to, you know, shut down the James L. Knight Center soon because uh, voters passed this this bond. The the Olympia Theater the in Olympia downtown Theater. Miami right, right. is not really operational right now. The city took over management for it. So the, so there's a lot. The city has been doing well, a lot of things itself. And, and, and exactly. Edward, w- w- one second before we get to you, I want to segue to solutions. Dan made some great points about the litany of buildings that this has been happening to. But we do have a phone call. Uh, I have Ian from Coral Gables. How are you? Hi, I actually had a question for Danny because he kind of hinted at it with uh, that tangent about all the different cultural centers. Um, I know, and also all the you know, the recent auction of the land around the area. Um, I know Brightline is considering building a commuter station uh, in Little Haiti. Do you see that playing any role in, in you know pressure to the city to really like develop the area? That's an interesting question. I mean, um, Can I, I haven't seen exactly where it's supposed to go. Yeah, Martin. Cap. Okay. There's $5 billion coming in development in Little Haiti. So wh- what, what is there to know about it? The basic is Little Haiti is 14 feet above sea level. Uh, Brickell and Miami Beach, certain area are pumping water 24-7, 365 days a year. Little Haiti right now, if you want to erect uh, a building, you, it's the only area in the city of Miami that is not required to have a flooding insurance and precautions, etc. So Little Haiti is prime real estate. It is the new shore. So now that you understand that Little Haiti is the new shore and the community is there, it's not to say, oh no, we are here, you guys drown. It's to say, yes, we are here. We want to we want to stay with you. We want to invite you in Little Haiti. And because we are part of this community, we want equity into the erecting of these buildings into this economic revitalization of this area. And this is why I talk to developers that have bought uh, properties in the area. I, I talk also to the foundation to owners of property. I just received this morning a letter of intent from a financial institution saying that, listen, if you guys want us to come in, we're more than happy to help the city revitalize or fix the structure. Do we need to erect 
on top of the marketplace and conserve the architecture of the marketplace and on top of it uh, uh, creating affordable housing for the population, we are willing to step in and it is a Haitian-owned financial institution yeah, that is from Atlanta. And for folks who are just joining us, this is much larger than just a little Haiti, Haiti Cultural Center. Uh, there's a larger economic um, story at hand here. And Edouard, you're a property owner. Do you think the city and stakeholders in, in the Haitian community are doing enough to preserve the character of, of Little Haiti? And what would it look like to you as developments crop around it? The development is inevitable. I mean, as the gentleman just mentioned, the, the, I mean, it's, it's high ground, it doesn't require this and that. It is very central to, to Miami as a, you know, like, so it's an important, you know, like destination and, and important, I mean, I mean, value wise, I mean, it is, it is, it is interesting for developers. Now, the question is also, we're talking about specifically the uh, cultural center. The cultural center is destined, I mean, it has theaters, it has galleries, it has other such, you know, like uh, amenities. You cannot give that to the parks and recreations to take care of it. One thing I can say about this center is that the grounds are very well kept because that's what parks and recreation does well. The rest, they would not have a clue of what to do. So, I mean, at least, you know, within the government, I mean, how is this allocated as a, a parks and recreation space? contrary to a cultural destination. So that's, I mean, that's my first question. Why is it, you know, like why isn't the cultural affairs of Miami taking care of a site like this? It would be much more intelligent as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, like that's the way it is. Second, what kind of stakes do they have in maintaining a structure that's really not a park? It is a cultural facility. I mean, with theater, with this, with that, I don't think that's what they do at, at parks and recreations. So, I mean, it's it's a bit strange for me to see this particular facility underused, not really facilitated. Right now, we don't even have a director next door. Hmm. So, I mean, I'm right in the middle of all, all of it. So, the, it's it's and 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 they've tried so many different things. Right. It has to. I mean, it has to be a more coherent approach to these kind of things. Right. And Edward, the gentleman saying that all of the facilities in in Miami are really having problems. So, and Edward, I, I hate to interrupt you. Uh, to your point, there needs to be a longer, more comprehensive conversation about um, the developments going on within Haiti and around it. I want to thank my guest, uh, Martin Andy, also known as Captain Haiti, is a local entrepreneur. And artist Edouard Duval-Carrier uh, has a studio in Little Haiti. And WLRN's Danny Rivero is a reporter and co-host for the Florida Roundup. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Still to come, municipal elections in Palm Beach County are underway. What should voters there expect? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Palm Beach County municipal elections are right around the corner. More than 200,000 voters in 17 municipalities in the county will make their voices heard on March 14th. From answering ballot questions to deciding on leadership for several towns, cities, and villages. But 
There are a few election law changes that impact voting options, such as vote by mail requests and early voting. Joining us now to discuss key takeaways from the upcoming elections and voting changes in Palm Beach County is Palm Beach Post reporter Hannah Morse. She reports on consumer issues and business. Hannah, how are you? I'm great. How are you? All is well. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Hannah, you and I know uh, Palm Beach County is a massive place, and we obviously can't get to every election happening in 17 of those 39 total municipalities. Before we talk about some of the key takeaways from big cities, take us through some of the new election laws. Residents in Palm Beach County should be aware of changes to vote by mail requests, right? Yes. So Florida has made uh, a few changes to election laws in the past couple of years that have really heavily affected uh, vote by mail. Uh, The first thing is uh, opting in to uh, receiving vote by mails. You used to be able to say, I want to receive mail ballots for all future elections, but now you have to make that request every two years. So if you voted by mail in the last election in November and plan to do so in March, you should make your request on or before March 4th. Uh, another change is that when you make this request, you have to provide at least the uh, the last four digits of your social security number or your driver license or Florida ID card for the elections office to confirm to that confirm. it's actually you. Mm, okay. And then last is the uh, mail ballot drop boxes. Uh, used to be able to drop them off at any time of day, they were uh, monitored by surveillance cameras, but that's no longer allowed. Um, so now they are uh, only allowed uh, to be open during set times of the day, and that will be the office hours of the uh, elections office. These are pretty significant changes, and I hope uh, Palm Beach County uh, voters uh, take heed to that. Uh, what about early voting? So there won't be any early voting during this election, and it's not because of any changes to the law. It's just for the simple fact that there aren't enough uh, eligible voters uh, to warrant it. Um, There are, like you said, about 220,000 eligible voters for this March election uh, compared to the 980,000 voters. registered voters countywide. Um, But uh, early voting has happened in past March municipal elections. Um, That was for the special election for the House District 88 race uh, last year and in March 2020 because of the presidential primary. So it has happened, but it won't be happening this time. And Hannah, you you produce a very informative city by city uh, report on what voters in Palm Beach County should expect. Um, And obviously we can't get through, like I said earlier, all 17 uh, places. But let's look at West Palm Beach, the largest city in the county. Uh, In a WLRN report, Mayor Keith James touted the growing economy and lowest crime rate in two decades during his State of the City speech last month. Is he facing any challenges in this election? So Mayor James is not facing any challenges and that um, he was up until last month. Um, he was facing a challenge from restaurateur and businessman Rodney Mayo, um, who's behind subculture, Howley's data and all of that. Um, but uh, Mayor James sued Mayo over a residency requirement issue Um uh, Mayo had said he was living in an apartment above his uh, Clamata Street business, um, but a judge sided with uh, Mayor James that um, 
the address on his voter registration and campaign filing didn't match. And um, he has a, a home in Atlantana that the judge said was his permanent residence. So he did not qualify. Wow. Ultimately. Qu- quite, the, co- quite the controversy. And for folks who don't know, Rodney Mayo is a restaurateur and businessman who owns several popular establishments uh, throughout the county. Um, now let's go to Delray Beach. Uh, that's another popular location, another popular destination in Palm Beach County. The city of Delray Beach is another well-known area. Now, some key races there, but there are two questions on their ballot including a $100 million bond question. What should voters know there? So voters in Delray Beach will be asked two questions, uh, two uh, bond questions. One is for uh, whether the city can borrow up to $100 million to renovate and equip the city's police headquarters and fire stations. And the second question will ask if the city can borrow up to $20 million to improve the city parks like Catherine Strong Splash Park and Miller Park. And I think we have a, a, a phone call in regards to Delray Beach. Uh, Steve, are you on? Yes, I am. Hey, thanks for joining the South Florida Roundup. What's your question? Thank you so much. Well, I, I guess my question is more of an observation regarding uh, the city commission. There's, um, I believe there's two seats up, and one in particular has gotten pretty nasty, I think. Uh, the back and forth between the two candidates. Um, and... I got a, honestly, frankly, it's a bit of a turnoff for me as a voter that has gotten this kind of negative and for, for a town like Delray Beach of its size and so forth. And I don't know, I just, that's just more of a comment observation. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I guess to to ask you a question about that particular comment, uh, does the sort of interpersonal relationship between elected officials turn you off if you have a particular policy that you want to see um, get through? Um, th- does that affect you from voting altogether? No, it's, it's not necessarily the policies that they're promoting. I, I don't think there's a lot, of, a lot of light between them, to be honest. I think they're 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 similar in many ways. I just think it's gotten almost personal. Hmm. And, and, and yeah. And, and what do you typically require from your elected officials? Uh, for, for myself, I just require somebody who uh, has a you know a vision uh, for the town and um, just is there to serve all the, the various interests. I think it's kind of a balance, really. There's a lot of uh, right. competing interests, especially and, in Delray. So. And let's speak about those interests. Uh, Hannah just um, explained the $100 million bond question here. Um, uh, wh- what are your thoughts about the $100 million bond paying for renovations and uh, you know the city's police headquarters and fire stations? What, what are your thoughts about that particular question that's on a ballot? Well... In general, I'm in favor of that type of thing, but I, I think there's just been a lot of questions and a lot of unknowns about exactly what we're paying for as, as taxpayers. Okay. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of detail about it. All right. So. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your call. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Hannah, let's talk about Tequesta, a little known you know, in, uh, unincorporated, I believe. Is it incorporated? I think it's either incorporated or unincorporated. It is incorporated. It is the incorporated. The village of Tequesta, yes. Yeah, the village of, <laughs> of Tequesta. Uh, a small little incorporated village near Jupiter in the northern part of Palm Beach County. Voters have a lot of reading to do as they are faced with several charter questions. But there is an interesting bond question on their ballot about the environment. Uh, what's the details on that? 
Right. Like you said, uh, Quest voters will have a lot to read. They have seven uh, questions to answer, including one about this $10 million bond to buy land. And um, it, the question is described uh, that the land bought could have many uses, including environmentally sensitive land, waterfront, uh, land meant for recreation or open space, meant to preserve archaeological or historic spaces, or even for traffic mitigation or recreational capital improvements. So yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, questions on a ballot in regards to improving the, the city. So I, I guess that's a good thing to, to have in terms of uh, giving people options to improve their cities. Now, the city of Boynton Beach, um, there are also some improvements happening in that city as well. Are, are the commission seats up for reelection in, in Boynton Beach? Yes, there are two city commission seats open up for election, um, one that is currently held by Amy Kelly. She was appointed to the commission in 2018, and the other is held by longtime commissioner Woodrow Hay. Um, Hay is facing three challengers, and Kelly has drawn two challengers wow. to this election. Three challengers. So, so there's a lot of folks going for that seat. Uh, how can uh, voters in Palm Beach County request their vote by mail ballot? There are four ways you can request a vote by mail ballot. You can do so online at votepalmbeach.gov. You can call their office 561-656-6208. You can send a fax at 561-656-6230. Or you can go to one of the four supervisor of elections offices in Belle Glade, Palm Beach Gardens, Delray Beach, or the main office in West Palm Beach. And, and, and Hannah, you've been you've been covering a lot of, you know, local politics for quite some time. Were, were there any other stories, any main takeaways, any controversial stories that may have gone under the radar that uh, you think the public should know about? Um, just what I've noticed, uh, gathering all of the information to help readers uh, understand what's going on in their cities, um, a lot of uh the elections that could have happened were automatically decided because uh, there were no uh, challengers to incumbents. Mm. So a lot of races have already been decided. Right, right. Well, Hannah Morris reports on consumer issues and business for the Palm Beach Post. Hannah, it was great to have you on. Thank you so much for your reporting and your expertise. Thanks for having me. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Beekman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and shows technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for listening and calling. And remember, stay hydrated. WLRN Public Media.